You're listening to Film School, broadcasting every Tuesday at 9 a.m. Pacific Time at KUCI 88.9 FM, Irvine, California, and on the web at KUCI.org slash Film School. I'm Nathan Callahan. And I'm Mike Kaspar. One of our greatest documentary filmmakers, Frederick Weissman is noted for his ability to reveal the underlying truth of situations by capturing the unscripted action of real people. Weissman, whose works include high school, hospital, and public housing, began making films while working as a law school professor in 1967. Titicut Follies, his expose of a hospital for the criminally insane, earned him much acclaim as well as several lawsuits. Ever since, Weissman has trained his camera and his critical gaze on the workings and practices of American institutions. Frederick Weisman, welcome to Film School. Thank you for having me. Well, thanks for being here. How are you today? Is uh, everything going well for you? Everything's going well. I just had a great day skiing. As you know, I'm in Switzerland. Yeah, that, well, well, way to go. (laughs) Were you enjoying yourself? And I had a great day skiing, so I'm in a very good mood. (laughs) That's good to hear. Did you you have any exceptional runs? Well, no, I I was in a place with very... uh, I was in Zermatt, and uh, there were very long runs there, and I had a nice day. But you don't want to talk about my... Since I am not on the Olympic ski team, you don't want to ski. <laughs> oh, I don't know. I, I like to talk about all sorts of stuff. Tell us, how is it that you came into the, the world of film? What got you started? Was there an inspirational moment? No, there, there was uh, no, there was no uh, epiphany. Ah. It's just something I was always interested in. And I, I didn't like uh, either being a lawyer or teaching law. It was three pre-film school days, so the way to get started then was just sort of hanging around a production or printing yourself, practicing yourself, or just starting, and so I I worked on the production of a film that was half fiction, half documentary, and saw other people working, and I thought then I would just try and do my own films after that, mm-hmm. which is what I did. Were you a cameraman on, on that first production? Where did you learn how to... Uh to frame and and uh, and uh, get a good shot. How did that come to you? I had studied a lot of movies, and I was interested in movies. And I just, you just, you know, when I hadn't did it, yeah. I mean, I, I uh, it just, I mean, basically, making documentary movies is to a large extent following your instinct, yeah. and uh, that's what I did. You don't have time in a documentary. You don't have time to set anything up. Uh-huh. Uh, you're really just, just. Uh, following the action, so that's you know what I've always done is just try to follow the action, uh, decide who you know who the people are going to be in the shot, and just try to get it as best you can. You have to have an instinct, it's, and you have an instinct for this kind of thing. You you seem to be able to pick out a couple of people in your documentaries that you focus on that really uh, we find them to be the more dynamic people. And I I'm just going to go way back to uh, Titty Cut Follies, the gentleman who was the, at the very beginning of the, of the film that's the, the singer, the, the, the guy in charge. I want to say the warden. Yeah. The warden. Oh, the guard. Yeah, yeah the guard. Well, yeah. He, was, he was the guard that, uh, that uh, took us around Bridgewater, uh, and I got to know him, and, and he just uh, he seemed to have a very active Ed Sullivan. Uh, I don't know if your listeners remember who Ed Sullivan was. But Ed oh, Sullivan was, had a variety show on television. There Sort of your typical television MC, and or he was the most famous television MC in the '60s. And this guy, this guard, had a fantasy that he was like Ed Sullivan, 
and he was a very charming, very funny man. So I thought, and he also uh, had to. Uh, he was a guard that he was not only the the, the uh, uh, master ceremonies of the variety show called Titty Cat Follies, which frames the film, which was an annual inmate staff variety show. Uh, but he was also the guard that the warden had assigned to uh, uh, accompany us uh, uh, in the various parts of the prison. And he was the guy that had the keys, because when you wanted to get from one area to another, you uh, had to have somebody unlock the door. On the other hand, during the shooting, I didn't know, you know, how much, to what extent I was going to use him. I knew I had some good scenes with him, but I didn't know the extent that I would use him. And that I only figured out in the editing as... Uh, and that, that's characteristic of uh, of all the films, the shooting. I never know. Uh, I simply try to accumulate sequences. I never know what sequences I'm actually going to use in the final film. And I usually, you know, typically for one of these movies, 80 to 100 hours get shot. And the final movie is anywhere from 80 minutes to six hours. Do you enjoy the editing more than you enjoy the uh, the shooting? Or is it pretty much either one has its high points? Well, I, I enjoy them both, but it's the... It's in the editing where you make or break the film yeah. because you can have good material and screw it up in the editing, or you can have mediocre material and improve it by the way you edit it. You got to have the the basic material in the rushes, uh-huh. but you know, it's the choices you make in the editing that determine uh, how well the film. Now, just curious, when you're in the editing, do you have a, a set process you go through? Do you do you watch all the footage first, just make take notes on it? Yeah, or? in the editing, yeah, I watch all the footage silently every night during the shooting, and I make notes about the silent rushes. Uh-huh. Then they ship back to my editing room, and my assistant synchronizes the sound in the picture. Uh-huh. And then when I come back from the shooting, I watch all the rushes, and there's a log that's been made up. Each shot is given a number, and next to that number, uh, the print-through numbers, which are the original negative numbers, and the edge code numbers are listed, and the category of event, and a short one or two-line summary of what goes on in the sequence. And so uh, sometimes I start from the first day off, and I just start with sequences that I like, and I review all the rushes. And I do, you know, I, I, at that point I do all the editing alone. Uh, and I, uh, I look at everything, I make notes about the sequences, and I evaluate them. And then I, after, that usually takes three or four weeks, and then... I start editing, and I usually just start editing with sequences that I like. Yeah. Because from that initial survey of all the rushes, I make up a, kind of a goodies list, uh, namely those that I think might make it into the final film. And then I edit all those sequences in, into some kind of usable form, and that usually takes me seven or eight months. And then after I've done all that, at the end of that seven or eight months, in a couple of days, I, I organized the material into the, the first assembly of the dramatic structure. And then after that, and that usually is about 30 or 40 minutes longer than the final film, then after that I work on the, uh, the rhythm, of, uh, the internal rhythm of the, se- the sequences and the rhythm between the sequences in order to arrive at the, at the final structure. But I work very hard on trying to figure out a dramatic structure which tells a story that I find in the material. The final film really is a, is a response 
to the experience of being at the place for six or eight weeks shooting yeah. and then spending eight or ten months editing. When you're at the place, do you try to carry that feeling through to the editing room and, or does it just come to you in that? Yeah, time? well, yeah. Dur- during the shooting, it, it's, it, it's happening too fast and furious for me to yeah. think much about point of view or dramatic structure. My job during the shooting is just to accumulate as many good sequences as I can. Yeah. And then I try to figure out what they mean to me in the course of the editing. I would think that if you get too caught up in a particular point of view while you're shooting, that you might uh, somehow miss something that you otherwise wouldn't. That's exactly right. I tr- I try not to to uh, approach the shooting with any kind of blinders, ideological or otherwise, but just to accumulate material that interests me. Uh, and I try to keep myself sufficiently open to the experience that I have. I'm having at the place, not to exclude anything that I think might conceivably be relevant, which is one of the reasons, you know, that I have to shoot a lot of film. When you're in a situation where you're with a small number of people that you're filming for a six- or eight-week period, how do you manage to maintain that kind of distance that you need to have when, from them? How do you keep from socializing and developing relationships that might otherwise have an effect on the way that you're doing what you're doing? Well, because I think my job, my job is to make the movie. I'm not looking for new friends. Right. <laughs> uh, and, and I also don't, dis- I, I, I don't like the instant intimacy routine. And I, while, while I try to be excluding during the shooting, I don't try to create the impression that uh, I'm about to have a new best friend or somebody else is about to have a new best friend. Mm-hmm. Because I, I think that's phony because it's not going to be the case. And at the same time, I'm very dependent on the people I meet who know the place much better than I do. Most of the time, you're at one of these places, you're not shooting. The most you might shoot in the course of the day is two or three hours. You might be there 12 or 15 hours a day. Mm-hmm. And I use that time to uh, to talk with the people that I meet and often PD and suggest things. And I, and I always pay attention to what people tell me. Mm-hmm. And a lot of good sequences that I use in the film, I, I, I've discovered because people have said to me, well, you ought to go to this meeting at 3 o'clock in the afternoon, uh, or you ought to come down to my office uh, at 9 o'clock in the morning, whatever. And I, the people at the place know more about it than I do, and I pay attention. You know, they're informants in the best sense of the word of an informant. When you're shooting, typically, how big of a crew do you have with you? It, it's the three of us. I direct and I do the sound. I work with a cameraman and a third person in the system who changes the magazines. And that's it. And uh, no lights. And uh, every, uh, the equipment's all handheld except for maybe, you know, some tripod shots occasionally mm-hmm. uh, for exteriors or meetings. But I would say, you know, 99, 95% of the film is handheld, both yeah. camera and the tape recorder. How, how is technology changed what you do, the, the better cameras and, and such? Is it, is it just been a, a vehicle? Well, I mean, it actually I mean it, it, technology hasn't changed it that much. The technique is, I mean, I, I like to think that as a consequence of doing this for 40 years, I've learned something, which may or may not be the case. <laughs> but that's not, I don't think that has anything to do with the technology. It, it, it has to do with the way the equipment is operated. Obviously, the, the cameras, for example, have gone, Originally it was an Oricon, then it was an Eclair, and now it's, a, now it's an Aton. And then the tape recorder was originally a Niagara 4.2, and it was, a Niagara, it was originally a Niagara 3, then a Niagara 4.2, <laughs> and a Niagara IS, and now it's a Fostex stat machine. 
the microphones have remained pretty constant at Sennheiser uh, to uh, Sennheiser shotgun and uh, an H15 and a 416. And I, and I, I haven't really switched to digital technology for the shooting because I, I still think film looks better. But, you know, I may have to do that if I can't raise the money to shoot on film. Uh, I was reading uh, somewhere where when you decide what to shoot, what you're actually going to shoot in a particular uh, circumstance, you say you lead with your mic. So the microphone dictates where the shot's going to go. I lead with the mic and also the cameraman and I have signals. We're constantly looking at each other. Okay. And we have signals that we use for different kinds of shots. Do you enjoy working with color or black and white? And you start out in black and white and there's just such nice striking well, I, I, images. Actually, I like color. I, I like black and white better. Yeah. But there's some situations where you where you, you have to shoot in color. For example, I did four films about a school for deaf and blind children. Well, color was absent from the line children, so color became an aspect of the an important aspect of the film because it was one of the things that was absent from their lives. Yeah. Uh, when I did the store, which is the first film in color, I wanted uh, I wanted the audience to be able to see what the the clothes and the other goods that they sold at the at Neiman Marcus looked like. But also, there's a technical aspect to it as well in that the color negative uh, is much faster than the black and white negative. There have been very few developments in black, very few changes in the speed of black and white negative over the years. And so you can shoot in much lower options with the fast uh, color negative. For example, I wanted to shoot a film I did on the American Ballet Theater in black and white, and we shot the first day at a rehearsal in black and white, and it was unusable went back to the same room the next day with a fast color negative, and it would look great. So th- that, that has also dictated the, the, uh, the use of color. So now it's a combination of subject matter and the lighting conditions. Uh, what is it that catches your eye uh, as far as the subject is concerned? What, what is it? That, is it just an instinctual thing, or do you have a sort of a, a criteria before you get into a project? No, I mean, the only criteria I have is, I mean, Generally, I've been trying to do a series of movies about contemporary American life mm-hmm. as it's expressed in institutions that are important in American society. Yeah. But within that framework, I always try to pick a place that people who know more about the subject than I do think is a good example of its kind. Even Bridgewater, where I made Pretty Good Follies, was thought to be one of the best prisons for the criminally insane in America in 1966. I mean, if you compare it with the prison for the criminally insane in Mississippi at that time, Bridgewater would probably look a bit like a Ritz Hotel, as bad yeah. as it was. Wow. Uh, but generally, I don't think that I'm just making expose movies, because that's really not what interests me. What I'm trying to do is make movies about institutions that are characteristic in American life. And what goes on inside one of these places is a reflection of the um, more general uh, mores and concerns of the society. You have a deal with PBS. Well, I, I don't have any. I, I had a an actual contract with them, uh-huh. uh, not with PBS, but with Channel 13 for 10 years okay. between 1971 and 1981. But now it's on a film-by-film film basis, and uh, fortunately for me, PBS is, is like the films, and they always run them on prime time. But the money from the films comes in part from PBS, and apart from foundations, PBS has never fully financed any one film. I would say over a 40-year period, about 25% of the money for my films has come from either PBS or a source in public television. The rest of it has come from foundations that 
have had an interest either in documentary film or in the particular subject matter of the film, foundations like MacArthur or Ford or the Diamond Foundation. It's difficult to get a hold of a, of a copy of many of the, the films that you've made. And I, was, I was wondering, is there any uh, discussion or any possibility? They're, about, they're all about to be released in DVD. Oh, oh wonderful. Good. That's very good. I'm so glad to hear yeah. that. Now, is this, uh, are they going to be released separately? The reason they haven't been released before is that, that no, it, has, it wasn't possible, no commercial DVD uh, distributor made me a decent off. Ah. Where, uh, Zipporah, Fil- Zipporah Films is about, my my own little distribution company is about to release them all, uh, we're really going to release them all ourselves. Uh, initially, as of January, we released, the institutional market, and as of the fall, uh, uh, fall of 2007, to the home market. That, that's great news. I'm real excited to hear that. I was, we were I mean, trying to get hold of a lot of copies, and we were just having a little bit of difficulty. We did find them here at the university. Yeah, no, it is hard, it is hard to get yeah. a hold of them now. It's, it's absolutely true, Boy, that's, except that's, through schools and public libraries. That's exactly how we were yeah, able to, to that's, secure that's that. That's great news. I'm really looking forward to... Uh, they're getting it. Are, you, are they going to be released individually, do you know, or is it as a set? Yeah, they're going to be released individually. Excellent. Oh, Excellent. Great news. We're speaking with Frederick Wiseman. They'll be released individually through the Zipporah Films website. Right. And we'll, I'll be sure, and, and uh, we have a link to you right now on our website, and we'll be sure to keep it up there so we can uh, uh, talk more about great. it as that's, they're released. That's very nice. Now, yeah. I appreciate that. Now, Frederick well, Wiseman, you're, you're, you're talking to us from Switzerland. Are you working on a project now? Well, I, I've been working on a project. I directed a play in Paris this fall. I, I originally directed last year, and it came back this fall. And this fall, I not only directed it, but I, I was acting in it. Oh. Uh, so, uh, so I've been in France all fall, and I'm going back to France in a couple of weeks because the play is going on tour in France uh, in January. It's a play by Samuel Beckett called Happy Days. <laughs> Terrific. So have you got uh, have you got a, a subject in in mind uh, for your next documentary? Or are you uh, are you waiting to? Well, I I yeah, I, <laughs> I, I I probably will shoot another one this spring or summer, but I don't know yet okay. because I've been so busy with the play, right? That uh, I haven't had really a chance to figure it out yet. Now, are you enjoying being in front of an audience like that instead of behind the camera? And oh yeah, it, it was a great. It was absolutely great experience. I enjoyed it enormously. It was, it was a lot of work, but it was great fun. Good. And the Beckett, you know, Beckett is such a writer that it was a privilege to be in his play. And I was working with an experienced, wonderful actress from the Comedy Française, Catherine Sani. And so it was, you know, it was work, but it was great fun. Congratulations well, on that. That's great. Well, terrific. Uh, well. We're going to let you get back to the slopes. <laughs> well, <laughs> or, or, it's dark uh, now anyway, okay, but a cup, thank you for doing the interview. Uh, a cool. cu- well, maybe a cup of hot chocolate then. Thank you so much for being here. Uh, we've been speaking with Frederick Wiseman, documentary filmmaker extraordinaire. Thanks for being on Film School. Well, thanks for having me. To learn more about Film School, listen to more interviews, or subscribe to our podcast, visit our website at KUCI.org slash filmschool.